Democracy. Hello and welcome to Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast discussing how our world was, is, and will be ordered. My name is Peter Sparding and I will function as your host for this episode. So last time we talked about Germany and its potential to be the defender of the liberal order or the last man or last woman standing. So this week we want to change this a bit and talk about China. Luckily, as I don't know much about China, I'm here with two of our best experts on the subject. Andrew Small, who's a senior fellow in our Asia program. Hello. And Amy Studdard, back again from the last episode, also here to help us. Hello. So to start, I thought we'll kick us off by thinking a bit about the idea that China could fill the void that some people are saying is left by the U.S. turning away from the liberal order, especially on trade. Obviously, we saw the now famous speech by the Chinese president last year at Davos following the election of Donald Trump. But what does it actually mean? Andrew, let me turn to you first and tell us, is this a realistic uh, option? So I think you had a slightly febrile period in the few months after Donald Trump was taking office. There was a huge level of anxiety on the part of a lot of countries about the fate of globalization, the fate of the liberal order, uh, where there were various candidates to swing in as the new leader. Now, Germany, which you discussed in the last episode, uh, was effectively anointed by default. It was resistant and has been resistant to taking on this role. Xi Jinping, by contrast, really stepped in um, with this Davos speech to make a point of positioning China in a very different way from the way we've expected. The Chinese don't even normally go to Davos on a particularly large scale. Um, this was a very pointed effort that took place in the period after Donald Trump's election and in the early days of the new administration to say that China is going to fill some element of this role. China is going to stand up as a new economic engine and a defender, really, of of globalization, not the liberal order. I mean, if you if you read the speech that was was given at the the time, um, it's it, it's it's not. And of course, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party have never purported to be defenders of liberalism uh, as such. But the view was that uh, the United States, in some respects under Donald Trump might be a threat to various basic pillars of the international order, the UN, the global trade system, uh, agreements on climate, the Paris Climate Agreement, and that China was not. And that whatever you thought of China, China had the capacity, uh, at least economically, and the political clout to be able to step in and uh, shore up the system in certain ways during a period in which there was a high level of anxiety from a lot of other countries. Uh, now, the reaction from a lot of sinologists to this was still, this is preposterous. It's implausible that China can uh, can occupy this sort of role. Um, it was a kind of very dismissive reaction um, all round. Um, and certainly, uh, the, all of the reasons that people have been skeptical about China's leadership in various of these spheres um, hadn't really gone away. Uh, but it is uh, reflective, I think, of a different mindset that you've seen under Xi Jinping that you also saw in his uh, speech at Party Congress this uh, uh, a, a little, uh, a few months back. China at the center, China stepping up to occupy a central role, the precise opposite from uh, the traditional precepts that guided Chinese foreign policy since Deng Xiaoping, hide your brightness, bide your time. And now it, the, the, the mantra was effectively, our time has come, China is stepping up. Now, lots of people wanted to call China's bluff on this, of course, particularly on the economic side. China had been seen as, if anything, the main threat to the global trading system, as I, I think we'll get on to, uh, to talk about. Um, and in practice, despite all of the openness to uh, receptivity to this message from from the Chinese that hasn't really been in the period since the Davos speech any signal of greater openness greater willingness to uh, make the sorts of adjustments that might have been required to make this narrative actually uh, a plausible one um, but you have still in the intervening period had a, a situation in which China turns up at international trade meetings and stands up in favor of the multilateral trading system China uh, stands up 
for uh, a, a position on climate that wasn't even the position it had taken a few years back when it had been the villain in Copenhagen and things. So even with all of the the, the, the implausible nature of um, of, of what uh, Xi Jinping was was claiming at this time, there's there's still in the background, a sort of slight temptation on some people's parts to to look to China to not, again, shore up a liberal order, but at least shore up some of the basic principles of international order. I think this gets us into this question of what is the liberal international order? There's the democracy element, which of course China is absolutely not supportive of and has in various ways undermined internationally as well as certainly in its own country um, and is sort of one of the most authoritarian countries um, in the world at the moment um, and is taking authoritarianism to a whole new level. So certainly on that element, it's not been... It's clear to, that we can say that it hasn't been a supporter of the liberal order. There are elements, however, of the liberal world order that it has benefited from. And even if it's followed that order to to the letter rather than in spirit on trade, on economic cooperation, on rule of law questions around territorial disputes, China sees its own success as being dependent on the success of the world. And so it's, it's uh, on the economic piece, especially, I think um, in the preceding year, you had seen China attempting to spin a narrative and perhaps actually in practice say we are a responsible economic power with the establishment of the AIIB, for instance, um, or with One Belt, One Road. It was an effort to um, exert influence internationally, economically in a way that strengthened the region around it, um, which is within the spirit of uh, institutions that have been created in the past, whether it's the World Bank or the um, ADB or whatever. And so I think you saw China sort of taking on this responsibility, um, sense of responsibility, sense that in order to continue to be successful, China needed to invest certainly in the region around it, if not more broadly. There was a sort of sense of trying to rein back some of the bad actors, um, you know, Chinese bad actors in uh, who, who'd sort of undermined Chinese soft power in um, in Africa, in developing countries in Africa and so on. Um, and so then I think you had with Trump this moment where it was like, aha, maybe China's time has come to be a, to assert leadership in this space. It's not, um, you know, and we can step up and take this narrative forward a bit further. So is it fair to say that initially, at least, um, a lot of this can be described as, first of all, We've seen some speeches, but we don't know yet how sustainable um, these efforts really are. Secondly, they are only in parts of what we might discuss as the liberal international order. So we've seen this specifically on, on trade now a few times, but also in the climate discussion. And then thirdly, is this, is this a temporary uh, issue or is this really the ultimate Chinese position? I'm asking because... It is a bit unusual in, in classical international relations. You look at the rising power and the existing superpower, and there's you know a clash at some point. Here we have the rising power that, at least now we're discussing, seems to step up into the system that the other power is leaving, um, at least in part. Is that just uh, seemingly so, or is that actually a strategy? Is this just a temporary uh, effect? So, I mean, there's there's two facets to it. The first is you've had a view, in a sense, that, that, that ran through Trump's election, which was the system that we, America, have created no longer serves our interests entirely successfully. Um, we're being ripped off. And who is doing the ripping off? China is doing the ripping off. Um, and in a certain sense, on China's part, um, a view that that says, actually, we do benefit from this system that we had been very skeptical about in all sorts of ways in the past. We need it to be sustained. Now the Western powers, and particularly the United States, look like they're sort of pulling up the ladder behind them, and not just for us, but potentially for other developing countries too. Uh, we need to step in and help sure this um, economic system up at least. And uh, at the same time, you've had 
these parallel institutions that Amy referred to that China's been creating as well, when they haven't quite liked, say, a redistribution of voting rights at the World Bank, some of these reforms in the IMF and World Bank haven't gone as far enough as China would have liked, um, they've developed some other institutions um, in parallel, um, including the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, further back in time, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, uh, various of these other institutions, which haven't necessarily been functioning as straight-up challenges to the existing system, but have functioned as parallel institutions where China can project influence um, uh, more effectively and reflect probably something closer to a Chinese worldview of, of, of what the system should, uh, should, should look like. But I think the sense has been the, the West and particularly the United States uh, may be tiring of the, the the burdens of maintaining the system and the the how the benefits of, of the system now accrue. You can make the argument that China uh, has for some period of time been the chief beneficiary of the, the international trading system as it's developed. Um, that's, I think, one of the big tensions um, at the moment, including with the WTO itself, of course, um, where the Trump administration is contemplating tearing things up effectively at the moment. Right. And I, that brings us kind of to the question of how does this look from the West, where, as you mentioned, China and the rise of China can also be seen as a cause for some of the developments within Western countries, particularly in the US and particularly on the trade question. Of course, um, that entire subject was um, raised many times in the presidential campaign from uh, Bernie Sanders, but also, of course, from then-candidate Trump. Um, and if this view is followed that um, we have heard that trade is in a way a zero-sum game for um, for the international powers, then if China has benefited from the system as uh, have you just described, that means someone else has suffered from it. And that's what um, kind of the sentiment was behind a lot of the Trump messaging in the campaign. And that's what other Others, and including a number of studies, have found this China shock that um, has led to some losses in, in particular money manufacturing jobs in the U.S. How do you see that? Is that um, is that a, a real reason? Is that just an? Um, I mean, the effects are certainly real, but is there really something behind this uh, China or China's rise having caused some of the problems in the West? What's the difference between the U.S. and Europe in this regard? Also, so. First of all, there is this economic analysis that's that, that's been done. The China shock uh, material that you 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 referred to, which which has been run uh, in in the U.S. In, on on everything from the Trump election to the ideological composition of the Republican Party to, in the case of the U.K., the Brexit vote, um, which tries to find some correlations between the impact of uh, particularly cheaper Chinese exports, but basically the rise of the Chinese manufacturing industry and China's accession to the WTO, what's played out in the period of time since, what's the economic impact been on certain communities, and then how has that translated politically? Um, and they've found some very strong correlations um, uh, in, in, in this respect. It's debatable, of course. I mean, one is looking at all sorts of causal factors um, uh, that, that, that have fed into both of the the, the, the kind of major political upsets um, uh, in 2016. Uh, on the other hand, um, beyond that, you have a, a much bigger question that's been at stake, uh, certainly since China's WTO accession, which was there was understood to be a bargain um, in place, which was this was part of a long process that would certainly lead to China reforming economically. The hope was that it would also lead to China reforming politically. And that was, I think, the bet of a lot of the other people who wanted to bring China inside uh, the system, that it would have the same kind of transformative effect that you'd seen elsewhere. And of course, that's that's in question. But at least, even if not that, that you would see China reforming to become a market economy, would open up um, uh, various... Uh, sectors beyond what it had agreed to, which were some pretty tough terms when it joined the WTO, and um, would open up beyond that to become something that resembled a, a more normal market uh, economy. And that in the end, uh, by the time you got to uh, you know, literally this year, this would be the moment at which um, uh, you, you you had China functioning as a, a similar form of economy to others in the system. And the big point of tension at the moment is that this has not happened. Um, this China has 
ensured that its markets uh, stay extremely closed. It's continued to subsidize its industries. It's led. It's, it's had a whole series of protectionist measures that, as Amy mentioned before, at points it has adhered to elements of the letter of the terms of its WTO accession agreement. Um, but the spirit that underpinned this, which was there will be ongoing reform, this is not the end, um, has manifestly not been adhered to. And this of course, there's the impact that there's been from the Chinese manufacturing industry, um, not just uh, in the West, but across swathes of the developing world. One of the reasons we didn't get a Doha uh, deal agreed was because lots of also because lots of developing countries were extremely skeptical about opening their markets further to Chinese products. There were lots of people, I think, that were quite happy that the Doha round uh, failed for precisely China-related uh, reasons. Um, but beyond that, now the anxiety in 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 the West is that China's now moving into the next set of sectors, buying up advanced technology. We'll talk about that a, a, a little bit later um, as well. But the kind of the crown jewels of um, the, 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 the advanced parts of the Western economic system now seem to be being challenged by, by China as well. And that's brought even more tension. Um, you already had all the tensions over overcapacity, the Chinese manufacturing industry and all of these sorts of things uh, that, that were the things that played into Brexit and um, and uh, the part of the hollowing out of, of of Western manufacturing, but now in the next phase, um, the, the the fear is that um, this is going to hit the next phase of China's of of the West's economic uh, development as well, um, and that's leading to much bigger sets of uh, reactions. I at the moment, and we may see this. Um, it, some developments on this in 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 the coming months. There's there's significant attempts to review the uh, the the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, um, which is the security review process um, for uh, overseas investments um, coming in. A lot of which are directed at China, um, and um, a lot of these cases that are causing anxiety now. Uh, I, I think we'll talk about the, the some of these tech um, issues a little bit more uh, later. But but a lot of these are involving. Um, Chinese acquisitions of, of, of advanced technologies, where it's actually uncertain what the military impact of some of these is, is is even going to be. But in Europe, you've you've seen this with with a couple of the major cases, particularly in Germany, um, KUKA um, Robotics, um, Extron, um, some of these um, uh, companies that have have led to, I think, uh, where, where in a previous phase the hope had been. China will step in and bail out failing car industries like Volvo, as they did in Sweden. Um, you've now instead had a, a, a situation where uh, you know China's buying up major chemicals companies, major robotics companies, um, uh, and in, in in very sensitive areas that have have started to push the Europeans in a direction that they 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 had not before, which is to take much more seriously the question of uh, investment screening at an EU wide level and in the countries that are the biggest targets of. This, the uh, the major Western economies, uh, the major economies in in Western Europe. I find this very interesting that this China shock, which is a huge issue in the U.S., is not as apparent in Europe, or at least in some European countries. At least not in the fact that um, the the attitudes towards trade uh, have changed. And 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 I looked at some studies about this, and they found that particularly Germany, um, a country that obviously is very dependent on trade, was not hit as hard by the increased numbers of Chinese imports. And there are a number of reasons for this. There's already less exposure to Chinese imports, but also that Germany had already undergone an adjustment because of the opening of Eastern Europe and um, and the effect that it had on its manufacturing. And then thirdly, that there was also kind of an adjustment because China had a huge demand for the kind of products that Germany produces. So in a way, Germany was ideally situated to to um, balance the negative uh, impacts of, of such a shock so that they're not maybe as felt uh, as they are here. And then secondly, I think this is an interesting comparison also because on the kind of shock we see here from trade, really there isn't much to um, to soften the, the blow here. You have some trade adjustments, um, packages that always get passed and so on, but you don't have the kind of... Um, social um, system as you do in many European countries. So these impacts, as they show in the famous studies, are, are can be quite severe in specific regions and sectors. So, so there's an economic impact and there's also right. a social impact, exactly. yeah. right? And one of the really interesting things in the U.S. has been, um, I mean, you look at 
coal miners, right? The coal industry. And it's not just an economic question. It's also that you have parts of um, West Virginia that were built around the entire social identity was built around the coal industry. And you have exactly the same thing with various other sectors, whether it's car manufacturing or um, whatever manufacturing um, there is. And I think that perhaps... Uh, one of the things that you don't have as much of in Europe is these sort of single industry places, locations um, that you get here. The sort of, uh, it's just not as, the U.S. is much more diffuse in in terms of where these these economies sit. And so you have entire communities that are incredibly hard hit um, in a way that you wouldn't have in, in continental Europe. And and this is precisely the the countries where you have seen the 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 so-called China shock have been the Anglo-American economic model countries. Um, it's it's been parts of England that have been um, particularly poor at um, uh, adapting, but having the kind of central government support that you've you've seen elsewhere. There's been less of a level of concern for a managed transition there um, than, than perhaps you've seen elsewhere in, in, in Europe. And so in one sense, if looking at the, the way these economies have moved since going back to at least the 80s, um, you can see why the impact and the political impact of some of these developments is felt much more acutely there than in countries where there was much more concern about how that transition um, is managed. One of the findings around the um, China shock is studied in the Brexit context was, and I don't know if this was the same in the US, but it was that um, people were more likely to vote Brexit if they lived in an area, in a location that had been affected by the China shock, not just an industry that had been right. affected by the China shock, so right? Exactly. So a nurse or a teacher or whatever would be more likely to vote Brexit, would be more angry at the government if a number of their neighbors had suffered economically. The argument with the China shock uh, analysis is not necessarily that any of the people involved actually blame China. Um, that's that's part of it. I mean, when you're talking about public opinion um, in these cases, uh, it, it's not necessarily been they've the analysis has been looking for some of the correlations, um, uh, but it's not necessarily been the case that uh, China has particularly been the villain. Of course, in in lots of cases, the villains have been uh, uh, immigrants or the European Union or a whole series of other um, uh, a, a whole series of other targets. Um, the the argument has been that the the economic forces that that have been critical have have been these, even when people have have not necessarily been aware of them. And of, of course, in in some of these uh, places as as well, I mean, the, there are, uh, if you look at public opinion in in Europe and and, and the US uh, vis-a-vis China, the, there are places where there is anxiety that is specifically China directed. There are sectors, including say steel or somewhere like that, uh, where people are acutely conscious of the impact of um, uh, what's been going on in in that. You know, heavily subsidized, uh, massive overcapacity kind of sector and what that impact has amounted to. Uh, but I think the case in, in the economic analysis that was was run around these elections and and the referendum was that this goes actually well well beyond um, and anything that people are even aware of in terms of what the China's specific impact on, on manufacturing industries in some of these countries has right. looked like. So interestingly, I think there's a bit of consensus among economists now that there has been some sort of shock. There's the discussion, of course, on the degree and whether some of this was, uh, you know, unfairly achieved through currency manipulations in the earlier years. Um, but on on the question of what now, what to do about this, there's some discussion. And one reaction, obviously, is what we're seeing here now with President Trump, at least so far, mostly in, in rhetoric, um, taking a, a tough stand on on trade issues with China. And I, I saw a description of what might happen uh, by Paul Krugman that he wrote about a year ago that I thought was interesting. He said, this is like the incident where you've just run over a pedestrian in your car and now trying to fix it, you're back up over the same pedestrian again. Basically, he's saying trying to fix this in a confrontational approach could cause even more disruptions, thereby hitting the same uh, segments um, or regions or so. Again, um, I, I don't know really... If, if that's the right way of looking at it. But the promises that were made during the campaign here about bringing back manufacturing jobs and, and so on, 
it, it seems hard to to uh, foresee that this can be uh, achieved through individual bilateral uh, agreements I or mean, so. I, I think that most people think that that's nonsense, right? Regardless of the China problem, those jobs just aren't going to exist, whether it's because of globalization, technology, whatever. There's a whole different... They're not coming back. They're not coming back. Uh, but it, I, I think that there's a much more serious debate going on, which is as if the West has been the defender of the economic elements of the liberal world order, open markets, free trade, um, what you're seeing, what you've seen over the last year is a lot of sort of free trade ideologues, right, who say, you know, we should be opening our markets, we should be setting an example, um, et cetera. Uh, those people are starting to say, actually, no, we, the global trading order was not set up for this kind of actor. It was not set up for this kind of behavior. And so perhaps in order to save liberal democracy and some elements of the liberal world order, we need to take on, we the U.S., we Germany, we the U.K. need to take on um, uh, some forms of behavior which are anti the liberal world order mm -hmm. when it comes to trade. Uh And and I think that that's a that's a debate that's going to play out. Um, and I, I think with CFIUS, of course, um, which Andrew mentioned earlier, that's been a really big issue around CFIUS because now you're looking at screening investments in which um, there is a national security issue, but the CFIUS process has generally been very pure about how it treats national security. There haven't it hasn't sort of crossed into blurred lines in the same way. But now they're saying actually, you know what, for national security purposes, maybe we need to stop China investments in AI technology. Right. And that's partially about security. It's partially about economics. The thing I was going to add on the trade question, this is about to heat up quite a lot. Um, the, this has been bubbling along in the background for most of the first year of this administration. There have been a couple of major cases that are where the findings are due in, the, uh, in, in early 2018. Uh, some some may uh, even come a little earlier. The, there's two two important cases in particular, uh, a two three two case, um, uh, which you can uh, explain, and a three o one case. The 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 two cases are important because they're they're the they're the investigations that are being conducted into two critical areas with respect to China, uh, one on steel, um, uh, one on technology transfer, um, uh, focused on te on technology um, acquisitions on on China's part. the The big question that's been there though is um, is the U.S. going to operate unilaterally with sanctions um, and in ways that are inconsistent with the WTO? The huge fear of the Europeans on all of this um, is that various actions that are supposed to be directed at China will A, blow the WT up in the process and B, uh, potentially result in a trade war between the United States and Europe over, for instance, uh, actions that are then directed at European steel manufacturers. And, and that's been a huge issue that's been playing out over the course of this year, where the aim has really been to try on, on the Europeans' part, um, and to a certain extent the Japanese as well, uh, to try to say, look, we need to be operating multilaterally and at least plurilaterally when it comes to dealing with China on these trade issues. Otherwise, we're going to we're going to blow the system up and we're, we're going to end up uh, in more fights with each other than we are in trying to hold this thing together. The question of how that plays out um, in the is, is going to be really critical uh, in the coming months because there is a version of it in which all the sides um, uh, end up in so much of a either a catfight with each other um, or with the Europeans uh, stepping away from some of these China-directed efforts to say, we need to hold the WTO together, this is the priority. The hope at the moment is that things are moving in the other direction, which is there are going to be some more serious actions pursued on the US uh, part, but they're going to be done in concert with, with the EU and, and Japan. But this is going to be painful and it's going to be potentially nasty when it gets to retaliatory measures pursued from uh, the Chinese side as well. And that's where you get into the zone with all of this of people reversing over already uh, injured pedestrians and, <laughs> and this sort of thing. Right. So I wanted to take us to a slightly different topic for a moment. We are here in the US. We've heard a lot about interference from outside actors, mostly Russia. Um, 
which we can talk about in a different episode. But I wanted to ask, I know there's a lot of discussion on Chinese um, influence in the U.S., um, often in terms of um, economic espionage or other issues, but also in Europe on when it comes to buying up uh, large infrastructure or companies and, and so on. Is this an area where we think that China is going to um, maybe expand its role, maybe having seen what other powers were able to achieve uh, in the process, or is, or is that something where the Chinese are likely to stay their current course? So China, for some of the reasons we've already talked about, has a very different outlook to Russia on these issues. Um, it, it doesn't have the same interest in kind of blowing the system up in certain respects. The the China China's commitment to maintaining some sort of functioning international economic system in particular is very strong. So it has no interest in backing populist parties, either of the right or of the left, in the same way that um, Russia has. In some ways, it, it wants relatively well-functioning polities in the West, actually, and, and, and a system that holds together. And so there's this very good example during the financial crisis where the Russians turn to the Chinese and say, hey, why don't you sell, uh, sell Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? Why don't we kind of, why don't we blow things up and take advantage of this, this um, moment of weakness where the Chinese sort of turn around and say, no, you're, you're, you're nuts. This is, this is, this is an economic system that we need. This is how we, this is, this is our entire economic policy that would be imperiled as, as well by this. Um, and, and I think that's still indicative of the different outlook that, that the two sides have. Um, nonetheless, there are all of these developments that I think have come more and more to the fore in the, in the last period of time where no, China doesn't do the same kinds of things that the Russians do. Uh, it doesn't use its cyber capabilities to um, uh, steal materials that it leaks in elections. It doesn't uh, funnel support to particular groups. Um, what it does try to do, though... It doesn't funnel support to domestic political groups in the West. Right. <laughs> um, uh, what it has, what it specifically tries to do, though, is promote a uh, pro-China uh, view in various of these countries, nullify various efforts um, to push back against things that China is doing. Um, uh, and in, in certain respects, uh, wh whether it comes to uh, dissident groups, whether it comes to Taiwan, whether it comes to um, human rights, whether it comes to the Dalai Lama, uh, to try and kind of rebalance the playing field in ways that make it harder and harder for various countries to pursue the sorts of policies that they they pursued in the past um, on this. And they've been doing it in in ways that have been increasingly controversial. The, the, the big case that's blown up in the last period of time was in Australia, where there were uh, sums of money being channeled into the Australian political system in large volumes by Chinese-linked donors. Now, the Australian uh, political system was very open to foreign money. They've closed that. Sounds familiar. Uh, <laughs> uh, route. But I mean, there are other systems that have been less uh, amenable to uh, money directly going into the political system. The cases you've mentioned, though, are cases where, say, Greece uh, or Hungary um, you you had recent instances where there are two countries that have been the recipients of large-scale Chinese investment. Then Greece very recently was the holdout country on a common EU position on uh, the Human Rights Council. And both Greece and Hungary were, were countries that refused to sign on to the EU statement on the South China Sea um, after the uh, arbitral tribunal ruling in, in, in the, the, the major dispute between the Philippines and, and, and China. And the sense has been that China is using uh, its, it, its money um, to influence uh, uh, these sorts of policies, but, but doing so in some of these cases in, I mean, most countries do some, uh, pursue some version of this. Uh, the question in some of these instances has has been the 
that these efforts have been pursued in a uh, fairly uh, covert fashion uh, in ways that I think people are only really are only really coming to light in 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 a number of uh, countries right now and it's also being pursued much more aggressively than was the case before uh, one of the most prominent cases in the last year being the literal abductions of um uh, booksellers, Hong Kong booksellers, from um, in in one case a bookseller who was in uh, Thailand, um, abducted and brought back to the Chinese mainland um, uh, because they were publishing uh, books and material that were kind of gossipy things about the Chinese leadership um, that the Chinese leadership didn't like. Um, so the sense is that the the domestic issues in China and the sort of repression that you're seeing um, at at home in China, the the tentacles of this are, are then being spread. Um, overseas in ways that are uh, far more aggressive and, and have some serious implications for um, being able to um, defend a system of free speech and, and, and human rights. Um, you've seen academic publishing houses um, under pressure not to publish uh, texts that will be critical of, of, of China, pulling articles that are critical of China. Um, and the sense is that, again, these efforts are, are, are stepping up considerably. It's not not using some of the tools that we've seen Russia use, right? It has engaged in information operations in various different ways. But as with the economic question, it's about creating a pro-China environment. It's not about blowing up. The goals differ. Yeah. The, the Chinese goal is fundamentally quite traditional in terms of how foreign policy works. Um, that said, you do see... A, a, domestically as well they the chinese government has done exactly this the same thing flooding articles with positive comments that you know in the same way that russian bot farms will or, or um uh, positive comments about the chinese government or whatever suppressing certain forms of information um certainly espionage um and a, a lot of espionage espionage in south asia and southeast asia uh where china is very aware of um internal political conversations in say vietnam um which it perhaps wouldn't be if it weren't using its technological skills uh to be in rooms in which it is not um and the, the concern is of course that if if china chose to pursue uh, an even more robust approach in terms of an ideological agenda that isn't, again, not necessarily the same as, as Russia's, but more of a sort of concerted effort to promote a sort of illiberal order, the means it has are actually substantially greater than than Russia's. Um, the, the cyber reach, the financial means, um, all of these sorts of things. Russia certainly um, has has advanced cyber capabilities and has the military uh, uh, means, but China has different uh, access to certain sorts of tools um, and uh, the the financial resources alone are um, uh, prodigious. Um, and that's the, the, the concern at, uh, as much at the moment has been what does Chinese money buy in, in, in the international order? Going back to... Uh, Amy raised the the Belt and Road Initiative. The concern about the Belt and Road Initiative that some countries have is as much that you will have, particularly in the developing world, um, kind of mirroring of the sorts of domestic developments that you've seen in China increasingly embedded in these investments in, in uh, overseas, whether that's you know the way China chooses to run uh, it, its internet, um, the a whole series of, of, of these sorts this of things. This gets to a really important point um, that we haven't yet addressed, which is as you see um, the election of Donald Trump was for China, for some in China, an opportunity to say, the democratic capitalist model is wrong, is ineffective. There were all these weak. articles about gleefulness in in Shanghai and so about the election. But. Exactly. And so I and I think to, to your point, you had been seeing in Asia especially um an increasing adoption of various Chinese tactics, various Chinese laws around the internet um, that were authoritarian in nature, um, sort of strongman leadership style, in, in, in sort of inspired by Xi Jinping in various different ways, rising up in various bits of Asia. And so it, while it might not necessarily be a, um, a concrete strategy, I do think that there's certainly an issue that is in the current context, China looks like something to aspire to and 
the United States does not necessarily. Well, this is kind of a, a perfect setup for the last uh, question or bit I wanted to raise. Andrew, you mentioned already that China, if it chose, has vast capabilities in the cyber realm, but also financially and so on. And I know, Amy, you with your other hat working on technology have, have looked into this quite a bit. And that's the question of whether there's a contest for the future or a new space race. I know you guys want to discuss the terminology here, but and that is what if China or a country like China takes takes the lead, or maybe it has. You you can inform us in a minute on on matters of AI um, or questions in space um, or nanotech and so on. What what would that mean for our system? So Alec Ross, um, who is currently running for governor of Maryland, but was um, Hillary Clinton's. Uh, advisor when she was um, Secretary of State, he wrote this wonderful book called Industries of the Future. And um, in it, he cites various conversations with Chinese businessmen and generals and so on. And one of the quotes that really stuck out to me was, um, he's talking to a Chinese businessman and the businessman says, you know, we really think that the internet extended US super state, superpower status by 15 years. China's going to be ahead on whatever the next technology is. Um And you're seeing, so China over the last, certainly the last 50 years perhaps, has understood and made central in its strategy this sense that being the leader in technology is what leads to superpower status. That is where it comes from. And there was an understanding of this during the space race, which is why this terminology um, springs to my mind, at least, between the United States um, and Russia. The competition to get to the moon was about demonstrating the value of the systems that the two sides had, and it was about demonstrating economic power, ideological power, all of that. It wasn't actually about getting to the moon. (laughs) My system is better than yours. Yeah, Um, although that is certainly very worthwhile. We have better technology than you and you know, it, it demonstrates things about military prowess as well. Um, and so China has has very clearly pursued that strategy for a very long time. Um, I think that that's gotten to the news a lot more. Uh, it's been, um, th- there have been various statements, various plans released that say, you know, China's going to be at the head of this technology, that technology. Obviously, the one that we're talking about right now is artificial intelligence, Uh China is making a really heavy push on artificial intelligence, um, but it's also done the same thing on space. It's done the same thing on genetics and biotechnology, um, really on quantum computing. Um, It's also sort of developed a strategy that says we'll be at the forefront. Any emerging technology, China's tried to be there. And this is important because technologies and their applications are the products of the ideologies that they come from, right? So... You look at something like the internet. A U.S.-developed internet is one that is open and free and sort of somewhat libertarian. In its, so far. Yeah. So far um, in, in the way that it's used. Um, the Chinese internet is not like that. It is closed. It's controlled. It's used as a mechanism for control. And had the Chinese introduced the internet to the world, perhaps the internet that we saw globally would be fundamentally different to what it is today. Um, and perhaps they would never have developed the internet because they wouldn't have been particularly clean, keen on the idea of instantaneous communication between large groups of people. Um, and so how how that how technology develops and where it develops is really important. And so I think with AI, um, one of the big concerns is that a Chinese-developed AI might be the same technology, but in China will be used as a means of control um, and as a mechanism of the state, essentially, rather than as, you know, whatever other applications it could have. And the concern, I, I suppose, as well, going into this, particularly for artificial intelligence, has been that the Chinese system may actually have advantages in the way that it operates um, in terms of it, the, the, the standard position has been that there are so many elements about the U.S. innovation system um, that um, allow these advances and, and, and mean that the U.S. retains an edge. 
the argument in the case of artificial intelligence is that, for instance, the Chinese capacity to have prodigious volumes of data uh, collected about its uh, people that are w- with with no concern or protection of privacy um, will provide it with a significant edge. This right. is one of the, the the huge needs for the development of, of artificial intelligence. And so for some of these areas where the the, the previous the, the gap in the models between the two sides um, has has been seen to be something that still advantages the United States and has long advantaged at the United States. There are elements of the specific technologies um, that are developing that China is looking to compete in, um, where it's precisely the fact that it's operating an authoritarian system that may give it some specific um, uh, advantages that, that, that other systems don't have. Which is then would then be the proof, so to speak, of the system being better if the measurement is pure technological advancement, so to speak, in, in terms of the, what the technology can achieve. So the, the argument would be that the U.S. has an advantage that, you know, its system, we can produce the best, I don't know, Farmville apps, but the Chinese will uh, outdo us in in other technologies. I was just going to, is that the only reason that, the, I mean, when I listen to this as someone who doesn't work on this a, a lot normally, you know, you're so used to hearing the U.S. being in the lead and also this is such a powerful economy. How can it be that, Uh, China can not only catch up, but leapfrog um, the U.S. So I don't know if there are more answers than just this. That is a huge question, <laughs> um, <laughs> and there's a, there's it's a and it's a multi-part answer that that you'll get to it. Uh, I mean, what I would say is that there is a legitimate um, stepping back a second, going back to the Cold War question. Um, the space race was neck and neck. Right, and the way that Russia got to be ahead on the space race for most of it right. was through force and authoritarianism, uh, and it was a very successful model. The in terms of getting to yes, space. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of getting the technology to move along, right. um, I think that what's happened in the United States is now technology is essentially entrepreneurship. It's really about private sector use and perhaps military application. Um, basic research funding hasn't really increased um, very much, and, and at various points has been um, uh, has been decreased um, quite meaningfully. Uh, and so instead, like all of the AI researchers in the U.S. are with private companies. They're at Facebook, they're at Google, um, and they have their lab set up and they're doing work. But at some point, they're going to be told, okay, so how do we make a profit from this? How do we use right. this to better deliver ads to whoever else? Uh, and that's not how groundbreaking technology is developed. Right. Um, groundbreaking technology is developed through large-scale government investment um, or, you know, Whatever kind of investment that doesn't have a profit motive um, as on the immediate horizon for the next five to ten years. Um, the other thing that um, on AI certainly there's this uh, China has is has this massive data pool that you know the government isn't regulating access to. Um, obviously, the uh, in, in the European case, Europe has a lot of um, or the European Union sorry has a lot of. Uh, caveats about how personal data can be used, which has really set back artificial intelligence research in Europe, um, and which is why a lot of AI researchers have moved to the U.S., where regulation is lighter, but it still exists. Right. Um, it doesn't in China. Um, on genetics, it's been the same thing. There are um, so there's this amazing breakthrough um, called CRISPR technology, where you can essentially edit the DNA. Um, the Uh, <laughs> Slightly terrifying, yeah. Uh, fix various genetic issues that you might have inherited um, is the the dream um, mm-hmm. of, of where we'll get to. Um, testing for CRISPR in the United States is very difficult. This is a really sensitive technology. And so a lot of the testing has been done in partnership with Chinese labs. Um, and China has done a lot of the most interesting tests. And Chinese labs have done the most interesting tests. So that's a part of it. The other part is that China has lots of money. And so it's just Chinese venture capital money is all over Silicon Valley. Um It's also present in Europe, but you know there was a there are directives from um, from the Chinese government that say, okay, go buy buy 
all emerging technology. And, and it doesn't matter if you bring it back to China. It doesn't matter if, you know, you think it's going to be profitable. Just go and buy companies. Um, and so they've done that. Um, and they have a hand in, in lots of Silicon Valley companies just through money. Um, a third piece is that they've uh, stolen a lot of technology. Um, and so, of course, this is the economic espionage question that you referenced earlier. They've um, just wholesale hacked into um, databases and, and taken technology back to China. Um, they have created partnerships with um Western companies and acquired technology that way, right? Whether it's trains or Danish satellites or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so that's how they sort of got to the starting line that put them in the same place as the U.S. and Europe. Um, and then one of the most, um, one of the more interesting developments, I think, since the Trump election is uh, the Chinese government made a conscious decision to attract um, STEM immigrants who have usually come to the United States. But as Trump and his administration started to crack down on immigrants, and a lot of that is targeted against tech talent um, and uh, the H-1B program, which a lot of tech immigrants, um, engineering immigrants come into the U.S. on, China has tried to fill that path. And, and to some extent, it has succeeded um, and is attracting a lot of really great AI reach researchers. Although I mean, this is this is still one of the big uh, weaknesses that, that that is there on on the Chinese side. Um, for all the claims uh, about the difficulties um, of attracting talent in the current context and the specific obstacles that have been put in 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 place of that, uh, there are still real reasons why, beyond kind of some of these very targeted sectors, uh, people don't necessarily want to go and work. Still more attractive to live in California than, <laughs> <laughs> among other things. Um, and I mean, if you, the, the Chinese work visa system is not um, in itself and language is probably uh, language. I mean, there are there are still real difficulties there. But I think the the the, the issue on this is a, is as much having got to kind of a, a starting line in in various areas. Um, is there just enough in Indigenous talent, anyway, to be able to power ahead with with this. I mean, these. What, what is the difference? So some of these are going to be differences um, on the margins, um, but there's there's uh, the 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 level of need to import talent in some of these sectors. Um, the argument in China's case will be there can be some very targeted cases, but there is substantial um, indigenous um, engineering and, and, and tech talent that they can they can draw on as well, um, uh, and and a, a very significant um, pool of labour there that looks very different from um, uh, the, the the kind of model that you've seen in in Silicon Valley for uh, for the last period of time um, uh, and the education system. Um, uh, so the the uh, uh, but. And so, I mean, some of these questions that are there around uh, uh, CFIUS and technology acquisitions, about um, the uh, economic espionage, uh, s some of these are, are, are of course, uh, very important. And, and, and some of the kind of question marks that one goes back to at the very beginning of, is China really going to be the leader in, in this space, given the, the kind of environment that's developing in, 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 in China right now, which is kind of, in many respects, uh, going backwards is 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 less free, less open than you saw under Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao. The 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 Xi Jinping kind of tightening authoritarianism does have costs in 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 this sort of space as well. Even when it comes to being able to use the internet normally in right. in China, for instance, and 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 uh, the kind of openness of the system, it's very hard to make an argument right now that China has an open system. But there are areas where, despite all of this. It, it may yet um, uh, be able to uh, push ahead in in some of these specific sectors, um, and 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 where where the system that it's it's producing may afford it some advantages nonetheless. So, the very quick question at the end, I'm going to ask you to kind of so predict, um, in a way, is is are we too late? Is this happening? Is it still open for debate? And then the second part of this question is. Um, What is the moon landing here? How do we know who won the race? Is this just a continuous, or is that where the metaphor uh, hits a problem? We haven't necessarily lost, but I think given the political situation um, that we have in the U.S. at 
present. We're certainly going to lose on a few technologies. Um, the moon landing question is an interesting one. Um, in John F. Kennedy's moon speech, he laid out a vision for why the U.S. should beat Russia into space. JFK, in a moment of political genius, set out the moon as the, the target. The of space will go ahead, whether we join in it or not. And it is one of the great adventures of all time. And no nation which expects to be the leader of other nations can expect to stay behind in this race for space. It turned everything from satellite and missile technology to, you know, rocket technology. There was a target, and all of those technological developments were about that target. Those who came before us made certain that this country rode the first waves of the Industrial Revolution, the first waves of modern invention, and the first wave of nuclear power. I don't think that we have that. Perhaps Elon Musk would say, you know, <laughs> it should still be the moon, maybe Mars. <laughs> um, uh, but there isn't... There isn't that one thing. There isn't that one thing. So we might even not know if we're winning or losing. One of the principles that's that's in the national security strategy is something that is essentially about embedding uh, competition as kind of across the board in the conception of the U.S. relationship with with China. Uh, a view that says we have been we are engaged in this competition, but in some respects we haven't even been fully aware that we're competing, and we need to integrate the concept of competition across all of the areas in which we're dealing with China, including most particularly on the economic side, um, and at least kind of play in the same game and have the sense that we are um, uh, we are engaged in uh, a race or a competition or, or whatever when it comes to some of these things. Which uh, could be incredibly healthy, actually. Um, and of course, again, with the space race, we would never have had the technological de developments that we had if there wasn't a competition. So to the extent that it can sort of be marshaled toward a positive end. And and the hope, of course, is precisely that some of the other questions that then come into play, whether it's openness of immigration systems, um, uh, multilateral trade deals and the advantages that this 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 affords uh, investment in basic science a whole series of these questions that have been at stake when reframed as part of some kind of great competition it might actually look more attractive in that context perhaps uh, than in a framework in which uh, the, the the issues at play are, are, are simply uh, around uh, manufacturing job losses and, and these sorts of issues uh, I mean these these are questions, of course, that, that get to the core, not just of the economic future um, and who wins in tech, but some really basic questions about the military capabilities and the military edge that the United States has as well. This has been one of the problems with the that with, with the CFIUS process that we were talking about before, you don't even know in some of these Silicon Valley acquisitions whether the technologies that are being acquired have military application um, or... This is the Ghost Fleet moment, that famous book. But maybe let's end the discussion on this subject here on this more hopeful note and turn to our segment with which we like to close out the podcast, and that's the famous Think or Tank. Is it already famous? It's famous. It's famous. <laughs> I've decided it stays. Um, so, Amy, do you want to go first? Um, so I'm going to recommend a book um, called China's Techno Warriors by Evan Feigenbaum. Um, it's... Absolutely fantastic. It was his PhD thesis when he was studying in Stanford and was sort of embedded in um, in a sort of Palo Alto scene um, and sort of looking at tech and looking at China. And I think it, I think it was written in 2001 or 2002 or something like that. Um, but it's well worth a read on in terms of the sort of the strategy that China has had around technology um, and what the battles internally within China have been around technology uh, over the last 50 years. Okay, so I also have a think piece and it's called a private, Are Private Schools Immoral? It's an interview that appeared a few weeks ago in The Atlantic um, and on the Atlantic Interview podcast. It's a discussion between Jeffrey Goldberg and Nicole Hannah-Jones about race, education, and hypocrisy. And as someone who hasn't grown up in the United States, I just found this discussion about school segregation and related issues very interesting, and it has left me 
thinking now for a few weeks, so I can only recommend that you read or listen to it. Andrew. So I have a think as well. It's a piece that appeared in War on the Rocks a few weeks back called The Leap into Quantum Technology, a Primer for National Security Professionals. Now, the reason I highlight this is because it's it's an unusual case where they've taken a professor of uh, quantum physics um, and a, a national security author who knows almost nothing about the subject and forced them to work together on on this topic um, and, and to come up with a piece that will explain a rather recondite area that is actually of potentially huge significance across a whole series of different um, areas, which is, is becoming more and more the case where there are um, various elements of technological developments that do have critical implications, not just for national security, but for um, the liberal order and all of these sorts of things we're talking about, but where, frankly, most people have no idea what's going on, no real handle on the science and what's developing in this respect. So I found the attempt to, to do something like this, to pair up um, a, a scientist who's at the cutting edge of, of this area with uh, someone who is coming pretty blindly um, into trying to figure this this subject out to be a really great model for uh, the way that I, I think a lot of think tanks should be um, uh, should should be working on these sorts of subjects now. That sounds indeed very interesting, and as someone who also knows nothing about the subject, that sounds like a very helpful uh, read. So with that, I think we'll close. And uh, thanks, guys, for joining us for this uh, segment. I hope everybody had a good start to the new year. And we'll talk to you soon again. Out of Order is a GMF podcast produced by Kelsey Glover with help from Natalie Himmel. Sound designed by Zachary Tarrant with help from Clara John. <laughs>